Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And Robert, I want you to think about something I know you've seen many times before. Okay. Wait, you've watched James Bond movies, right? Oh, of course. I grew up watching James Bond movies, mostly on, I think, TBS. On Thanksgiving Day. Isn't that when they'd show it? Uh, I think they would, but it seems like they just showed it all the time. Like every weekend, it was the, what, what Bond movie will I be, uh, sort of watching this yeah. weekend? And uh, you would, you would hope, or I would often, in those days, I would hope it would be the Sean Connery. Nowadays, I think if I were to, to do it, I would say, eh, Roger Moore, please. <laughs> the, yeah, the, the more ones are the cheesier ones. They're better for Thanksgiving Day. Yeah, I think so. Like, uh, the, the, the Sean Connery ones might be better movies, but they kind of just, they have this tinge of alcoholism and misogyny that, <laughs> well, no, I guess the Roger Moore ones do too. They do. It's kind of just part of the character. I think you find that in, in every variation. Yeah. Anyway, so James Bond, what does he do when he walks up to a gambling table? What happens every time he walks up? lights a cigarette, makes mm-hmm. some dirty wordplay with a female gambler, <laughs> something like that, and then gets a blackjack hand, what happens? Well, he tends to win, as yeah, I recall. He, he wins every time. He yeah. always wins. When does <laughs> J- James Bond never loses unless it's like a specific scene where gambling is crucial to the plot and he must lose, like in Casino oh. Royale. Oh, or yeah. Like I can't even I think I can't remember if he won or lost in Goldfinger, but there's a scene in Goldfinger where uh Goldfinger himself, um, you know, the, the villain of the piece, like cheats at cards, I think, by by having somebody in uh, in one of the, the, the high rises. Oh, yeah. You're thinking James Bond isn't playing. He, oh, Goldfinger's okay. cheating somebody else. OK, but does he then play Goldfinger and win? It sounds like the kind of thing Bond would do. I don't think he ever played. He plays him. He plays him in golf and then. Bond, oh, that's what. And then is. they they both cheat. Anyway, <laughs> getting past this. OK, yeah. But so he always wins. He he goes up, he hits 21 right on the the first throw every time, first throw, that's not what you call it, the first hand. Um, and so my question is, do you believe that there are people like that? Obviously, there is luck in the sense that there are differential outcomes. You can have a lucky thing happen to you. You can have an unlucky thing happen to you. But do you believe there are people who are consistently lucky? Well, I'm sure plenty of our listeners have played uh, various role-playing games, uh, you know, video games as well as pen and paper games. And if you have, you've probably uh, encountered characters or character management systems where there's an actual numerical luck rating for the character. Right. So you can, like, rate yourself higher on luck. Yeah. So, you know, oh, well, this character, their strength isn't that great. Their dexterity is a little lacking. But their luck skill is amazing. <laughs> That's not a skill. I, well, I know. Or an attribute, if you will. But... But yeah, if you play enough role playing games, it makes you think, yeah, I wonder what my, my, my luck rating is. Am I a nine or a 10? Mm-hmm. Um, so is it like that in real life? Uh, well, I, I think obviously the answer is no. <laughs> um, though actually I want to go back on what I said a second ago because I said that's not a skill. It may be true in the sense that some things that look like luck are in fact skills. Mm. Uh, but personally I, I don't, don't believe in this karmic version of luck. I, w- I would assume, Robert, you probably don't either. I... No, not. Not per se, not not scientifically speaking. Right. Not, not in terms of like you having some kind of store of 
spiritual capital holding sway over future outcomes. Right. I mean, if I was to adjust my the, the lenses through which I view reality and uh, and choose to you know, like load up more mystical, religious uh, views of the world, I might engage in a, in a certain amount of magical thinking. Right. That some folks are, are lucky that some folks are, I don't know, guiding themselves through the multiverse of possibilities along like the the, the, the most victorious line possible uh-huh. but from a strictly like real world science scientific, pragmatic uh, point of view. No, no, absolutely not. However, though, I mean, I think we can both agree that even in the sense of a real world scientific, pragmatic point of view, there are some people who do seem to be more consistently lucky than others. And I think this is because random events are uh, it's or it's not because of random events being brought to heal by luck magic. It's because people are able to influence events in ways that are not, in fact, random, just look random from the outside. Mm-hmm. So, for example, a person who's really confident and positive might not actually have more good outcomes on average than somebody else. But when you think of that person, when you think of your friend who's really confident and positive, you're more likely to count the hits and discard the misses, you know, this oh, yeah. selection bias thing. Good outcomes seem in character for that person. They sort of get added to the character sheet. You're like, yeah, that's that's them. Well, you and know, b- bad it, outcomes you just ignore. That's like that's noise. Yeah, I mean, James Bond is a classic example. We think about James Bond to, you know, of course, a fictional character spread out across various movies and books. And we think, oh, he wins all the time. He uh, always gets the girl. But there's a scene in uh, what's the George Lazenby movie? Um uh, on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Yeah, where his wife is murdered by, uh, by Telly Savalas's Blowfield's, uh, men. You know, just, co- spoiler. Just, well, <laughs> killed in cold blood. <laughs> spoiler for, you know, arguably one of the lesser, uh, James Bond films. Oh, no, it's some people's favorite one. Oh, no, really? Huh. Yeah. I-, I enjoyed it. But, but yeah, like, there's a super traumatic moment. Like, who would want, I wouldn't want, I would, I would not want all of the, you know, alleged benefits of Bond's life if I also meant I had to experience like that kind of a low. Yeah. So even with James Bond, we're, we're, we're forgetting all the torture scenes right. and the, the injuries and the, the dead uh, wife and we're focusing on the stuff that we are envious of. Sure. Okay. So that's just like influencing people's perceptions of you. But mm-hmm. what, if, what if you are actually, uh, you actually have more good outcomes than average? I think in, in cases like like this, there are a lot of things that we think of as luck that are, in fact, skill. One example would be some forms of gambling. Now, it's true that there's no skill involved in getting lucky cards at blackjack, but there could be skill involved in other aspects of gambling, like in poker, knowing how and when to bet so as to manipulate your opponents. Uh, you can turn even a bad hand into a winning hand in poker. Mm-hmm. Uh, in blackjack, you, you know, you can't control what cards you get, but if you can count cards, if you know the odds on any given play, if you know, you know, okay, here are the cards I have and here's what the dealer's showing. I know the odds of what I should bet. You can sort of uh, start to leverage an advantage in blackjack. I think you still probably can't get better than 50 50. <laughs> yeah. But uh, but y- y- there is some skill involved there. And don't count out just flat out cheating. Oh, yeah. of course. I mean, the most important skill in gambling. <laughs> it's the skill that the house has leveraged against you with your consent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you agree to a game that they openly acknowledge they have rigged. This is true. A nice callback to our uh, slot machines episode that we recently republished. Right. Uh, and another way to think about this, uh, th- this concept of, of skill versus luck, is in the realm of guessing. 
I think guessing is a really interesting phenomenon for human beings because we use this word a lot of different ways. Sometimes we use it to mean, uh, you know, just going with a gut feeling when you have no information. Sometimes we use it to mean coming up with an answer on very limited or little information. But but generally it means like trying to produce a piece of information without a strong determinative process to get you there. Well, I think in a lot of cases it's it's the kind of, it's the kind of artificial scenario that would not exist out of the human realm, such as I think one of the classic examples would be a multiple choice test that maybe you didn't study for all that well. Right. And so you suddenly are forced to answer a question that you just have no idea about. Maybe you can eliminate one possible answer, but you're still left with three likely answers and you just have to. Go with your gut. You just got to guess. You got to right. take a wild shot in the dark. Yeah. And and from this uh, concept, we, we have this concept of the lucky guess, of course, people who are lucky guessers mm-hmm. uh, who seem to have a much better than average hit ratio at tossing out a correct or nearly correct answer to a question, even when you've got essentially no knowledge or very little information to work with. And that's what I want to talk about today, uh, about this this process of guessing and about how in many cases, things which appear to be random lucky guesses are not, in fact, random. There's a skill you know, there's a skill, an art, and a science to many different kinds of guessing and smart guessing. Uh, and there are even a few techniques that you can harness for yourself to get a little bit better at guessing than you might be if you're just always going with your gut. So one thing I, I wanted to do, I don't know how many good answers we can really come up with here, mm-hmm. but I was wondering, like, who, who are some people who are some famous, really good guessers? I've got one answer. But <laughs> other than that, I don't know. You, you know people like this personally, right? You've got friends who you know are better guessers than others. Yeah. But in terms of finding, like, historic moments in guessing, like legends of guessing, uh-huh. I, uh, I did some poking around, and there aren't a lot of great options, like, you, you know, military history, etc. There aren't situations where someone just takes a wild guess and it pays off and it becomes the stuff of, of just absolute legend. Yeah. Uh, one of the, the few examples I could come across, and again, this is not a high stakes situation. I mean, it <laughs> kind of is for one specific person, but it's not a, a warfare scenario and it's taking place within a very artificial human environment, not the multiple choice uh, quiz, but the game show. Okay. All right. So Wheel of Fortune. Wheel uh, of Fortune. This was a, this uh, occurred on a 2014 episode. So you had this, uh, contestant by the name of Emile de Leon and he had, uh, he had, he, if you're familiar with Wheel of Fortune, it's where you have, you know, those blank, right. uh, uh, blank places where go? letters go on it's the like board. A, it's like a combination of roulette and scrabble. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, <laughs> it's, it's a very specific game. It's, yeah. you know, if you're like me, you at least, Grew up watching your grandparents watch it. You oh know? yeah, and, and a lot of people so, watch it regularly. It's a, it has a certain system in play, and it's kind of neat to to sit there and oh, play along at home. You know what? It's actually more like I don't know why we're explaining this. Everybody's seen Wheel of Fortune, <laughs> but no, I mean if you actually haven't, it's like the game Hangman, where you guess letters. Oh yeah, to, yeah you have you a go. set number of spaces. Uh, you know, there are like eight. Maybe you know there are eight letters in this word, and you're trying to guess letters, and if you get one right, it gets filled in. There you go. Yeah. It's it's hangman with uh with 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 uh with monetary rewards and Pat Sajak. Okay. Okay. So uh the Leon's playing, all right? And 
there's like a there's a three word problem up on the board and the only letter up there is in. So the the it's in blank blank mm-hmm. space blank 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 space blank 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 blank. Right. That's what it is. That's it. That's always got to go on. What would you guess? I I don't know. <laughs> See, un, unlike De Leon, I haven't put a lot I, I haven't put a lot of thought into the system of it. Like here's a guy who watched it pretty re- religiously and then he was going to, you know, he got to go on the show. So I think he was he was very much in the mind to try and game the system. I look if I were to look at those blank spaces, I don't know what I'd guess. Uh a uh, new rats lover. That doesn't work. Oh, now uh, I give up. Well, but you got the new Okay. All right, so you figured that part out. And indeed, he also guessed the new, but he also went all the way and guessed new baby buggy. What? And won uh, $63,099. What? Yeah. Cheating. Must have been cheating. Well, some people leveled that charge, and he... uh he ended up explaining himself because this was apparently a big deal. Like even Pat Sajak said, this was the 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 craziest uh, guess uh, ever in his history of hosting the show. And uh, when they when Leon DeLeon was interviewed, he said that uh, well, first of all, he'd been watching the show for some time. He knew the game inside and out, and he knew that "new" had to be the first word. Like that was even we got that. You know, right? That it, if it's in blank blank, how are many how what are, what are some more common words that come to mind? Not uh, not many. Maybe not. Not not now. Yeah. But he he I guess watched it enough to know that well that's probably going to be new. And then he said that uh, since he was studying for nursing exams, he had babies on the brain. So okay. he just kind of <laughs> it just happened to be that that like baby is the the perfect four letter word. I don't is new baby buggy like a like a common phrase? I don't, th- not in, in my <laughs> experience. So that's what I it's like an expression yeah. that I'm not familiar with. I mean, I guess it's like a new baby. Is it like a, um, some sort of a rhyming nursery rhyme kind of a thing or I a, don't a tongue twister? I guess it's a tongue twister. Oh, okay. Maybe that's the, the origin there. But, uh, yeah, it just seems kind of crazy that, that he just, instantly produces the answer to this seemingly out of nowhere. Right. Uh, as it turns out, it's not quite out of nowhere. He at least had a very educated guess on that first word, and then uh, his prior experience just happened to uh, ease him into those last two words. Okay, well, that that might... You might actually just call that luck in some ways. Like, it might know the game well enough to see new there. Uh, but, I mean, those other words could have been anything. Right. Um, but his experience prepared him to be lucky in a way yeah. that other people would not have been lucky. Like, if they had not, A, watched the show a bunch of times. Yeah. Which I don't know if anybody ever just shows up on Wheel of Fortune. And they've basically never seen the show. Uh, they do this <laughs> new baby buggy puzzle every other week. <laughs> yeah. So I, you know, I, I think you you can you can make the argument either way, but yeah, I would say that his uh, his experiences put him in just the right position to 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 be a little quote unquote luckier than other people. Okay, well, I mean, so whatever's happening in that scenario, we do know that at least in in much the same way, somebody who appears to be a consistently lucky gambler might just be a skilled gambler, mm-hmm. counting cards, calculating odds, manipulating opponents. Um, when it comes to num- numerical values, uh, somebody who appears to be a lucky guesser with numbers is more likely to be a skillful guesser, figuring out how to leverage existing knowledge that you wouldn't even thought of to take into account 
into a kind of ballpark accurate guess. And one person who's famous for this is the uh, the Italian physicist Enrico Fermi. Ah, yes. So Fermi lived from 1901 to 1954. Um, he, he grew up in Italy a- after the passage of anti-Semitic restrictions in fascist Italy in 1938. Fermi and his family fled to the United States where he ended up working on the Manhattan Project. And in his role, Fermi was present for the first test of the atomic bomb on July 16th, 1945, the Trinity test. You've heard about this. Oh, yes. And at the time, this was new territory. Nobody had ever tested a nuclear weapon before, you know, a fission weapon with this big yield. They didn't know exactly what was going to happen. You know, the physicists had their calculations. Uh, they were fairly confident that the device would explode. It was this plutonium implosion bomb that they called the gadget. Mm-hmm. And they thought it would generate a large explosion. But the outcome was all theoretical at that point. They, they weren't sure what the level of energy output would be. Yeah, I remember uh, reading that, like, on the extreme ends of the spectrum, there was a possibility that it could be a dud or it could catch the air on fire. Yeah. You know, that, that sort of thing. Yeah. And so they didn't know. So Enrico Fermi, the, this great physicist uh, who's famous at good guesses, he's there to watch the test. So picture him there. Uh, he's there with his colleagues and he's at a camp about 10 miles away from ground zero, 10 miles from where the bomb goes off. J. Robert Oppenheimer's there, like scribbling notes into, oh, yeah. the, um, in, in, into a Hindu epic, I'm sure. Uh, I'm sure, yes. Yeah. Uh, so th- they're behind some shielding mm-hmm. uh, for good reasons. Uh, and Fermi watches the blast through a board that's got a viewing window made of welding glass. And there's a 2005 issue of the Nuclear Weapons Journal that includes an article with some great quotes from Fermi and others who were eyewitnesses to this to to the event. And Fermi wrote, so he's there, he's looking through the welding glass, um, and uh, that he very first saw quote a very intense flash of light that was brighter than full daylight, and then a conglomeration of flames that rose into the sky and a huge pillar of smoke with an expanded head like a gigantic mushroom. Here's where we get our mushroom cloud mm-hmm. um, that rose rapidly into the clouds. Now, when there's an explosion and you're pretty far away, there's a time gap between when you see the flash and when you feel the blast, right? Could because why light travels faster than sound. It's the same thing that happens between lightning and thunder. You see the light and then you hear the sound of the thunder. Uh, so it was about 40 seconds after the visible explosion that the air blast actually hit the observation camp. And when the air blast arrived, Fermi did something really weird. He held up a handful of scraps of paper about six feet off the ground and he dropped them and he let them flutter away in the force of the air blast. And then after seeing uh, where they fell, he released some more just in regular air, no blast. And then after uh, he looked at how far they went, I think it was like 2.5 meters or something. He quickly guessed that the detonation had been about 10 kilotons worth of explosion, meaning it released the same energy as 10,000 tons of TNT. Now, when the actual readings came in, it was about 20 kilotons, about twice Fermi's estimate. So he wasn't exactly right, but this is still a remarkably good guess for having no direct readings to work with. I mean, after all, you think about it. Can you look at an explosion 10 miles away and say how many tons of TNT you think it's equivalent to? No. <laughs> I mean, no, I, I wouldn't even know how to 
I wouldn't know what order of magnitude. Right. I wouldn't know tons to kilotons to megatons. Um, so uh, with just some scraps of paper, watching how far they blew in the wind, Fermi was able to do some quick calculations in his head and correctly guess within the true order of magnitude. So how did he do it? Well, we'll come back to that in a bit when we get into the Fermi estimation method. Now, before we move on, uh, I think this is also of interest. The, the U.S. Army, as well as other uh, uh, U.S. Armed Forces, uh, have used the acronym SWAG before, uh-huh. uh, which stands for Scientific Wild Ass Guess. Uh, <laughs> now, you're not you're not swearing on the podcast now. No, 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 uh, not necessarily. I guess it depends on your uh, your viewpoint here, but. Um, uh, this was a uh, now Robert. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know what we're talking about here, of course, is a guesstimate, a, a guess made by an expert or institution with a certain amount of expertise in a given topic. Um, you know, it's still a guess, but um, but hopefully you are leveraging your best information in making that guess. It's I think it's generally considered a guess that comes from somebody who should know what they're talking about, right. even if they don't have direct information to work with. So, you know, you might be in a situation where uh, somebody has some weird array of symptoms mm-hmm. and they don't really correspond to any known medical condition and maybe you don't have any in, uh, instruments, you can't take their temperature, you can't do any lab work or whatever, but you could still have a doctor look at them and guess what's wrong with them or just have a, uh, I don't know, uh, a football player look at them and guess what's <laughs> wrong with them. Even though the doctor doesn't have a lot of his or her tools at their disposal, mm-hmm. um, they still might just have some intuitions based on their experience, right? Right. Now, now you have to say it might be a football-related injury, in which case the football player might have insight yeah. that someone else might not uh, have. So in, that, in their case, it might be a, a swag, if you will. Right. Uh, now, I do want to point out that uh, the wild-ass part of this is uh, technically not uh, uh, <laughs> uh, me being obscene, because uh, as William Sapphire points out, uh, uh, po- has pointed out before, I, I believe in the New York Times, uh, he said that uh, wild ass is not a mere uh, vulgarism as it can be found five times in the King James Bible. Most notably, uh, Job 24, 5, behold, as wild asses in the desert go they forth to do their work. So there you go. <laughs> well, of course. Yeah. I knew that's what you meant. Yeah. So now that we've uh, biblically grounded uh, the episode, uh, I think maybe we should take a quick break. And when we come back. Uh, we will jump in to mathematical estimation. So we're talking about guessing as a skill rather than as pure blind luck. Right. In one way, you can maybe get better than chance at certain kinds of guessing is to leverage the power of simple observations and rough math. There are a lot of situations in your life where you might be asked to guess something And it's at first not apparent that you can do any better than just gut feeling, just Mm -hmm. come up with a, you know, this number sounds right. Uh, You know, somebody asks, how many buildings are in Atlanta? And you'd be like, "Uh, I don't know. You might come up with a number and be like a hundred (laughs) thousand. Yeah, that feels about right. But you have nothing to work with there. In many situations like this, you can do better. And you can do better without going to the, you know, encyclopedia or the, you know, city statistics to look up the information you need because you can just leverage simple observations with math. One great example of this, I think, would be 
the gumball jar contest. Oh, yeah. You see variations in this everywhere you go. Like it might be gumballs. It might be jelly beans. But it's yeah, this is a wonderful example, because one of the problems with the how many buildings in Atlanta question is that just off the top of my head. I mean, I know I know Atlanta. I know how to get where I need to go, but I don't have like the firmest uh, vision in my head of its limits and its size and its true shape and, uh, and scope. And and likewise, I don't have a great uh, idea, like just off the top of my head, like how many buildings tend to occupy, say, a given square of, uh, you know, of, of urban real estate. Now, I think you could still do better than chance uh, guessing at this, even not knowing those things, if we just uh, leverage the power of making wild uh, donkey guesses, <laughs> uh, and then, and then bring it together with some math in, in terms of the thing we're going to talk about in a bit, uh, in a bit, which is Fermi estimation. But okay. back to the gumball, the gumball jars, that's doable. You might look at a gumball jar and what you probably do is try to gut feel it, right? Yeah. Cause with the gumball, um, there's container. I can see how big the overall container is. I can make a rough visual guess about how many gumballs occupy a given area and then just sort of roughly multiply that area in my mind till it fills up the space of the container. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, you're, you're trying to eyeball it. Yeah. Uh, but I contend you can do better. So, OK, so you might, Robert, picture yourself at the county fair. Is that okay. usually where the gumballs would be? Oh, I, I tend to encounter them in like school fair scenarios. I okay. Think, you know? School fair. You know, yeah. that's exactly, I was talking to Rachel about, she used to, when she was a kid, she always wanted to be able to guess the number of gumballs that were at their uh, school spring fling, I think. Yeah. And she never got it right. They had to do them at, uh, you know, bars and restaurants, more like a container of pickled eggs. That's uh-huh. perfect. You know, guess the, <laughs> how many pickled eggs? Yeah, yeah. Guess the number of pickled eggs, get a free pickled egg. Okay. So, but you, you're at a school fair then, Robert. Okay. And, uh, it's guess how many gumballs are in the jar. The closest guest gets a prize. What's the prize? It is a deep fried, unopened can of corned beef hash. Oh. <laughs> Uh, oh, I'm laughing at my own jokes. That's bad. Uh, so now, uh, this game is easy to play, right? Because you can eyeball it. You look at the jar somewhere deep behind the curtain in your brain. A daemon rises out of the darkness and just plants this random wild ass number in your mind. It's like 230. And you look at the jar again and you think, eh, that sounds about right. You write it down. You hope you win. But you don't win because who won? The person who won was somebody who did some rough math. Because if you stop to think about it, you do have some ways of knowing about how many gumballs are in the jar. If you've got some basic like high school geometry and a pair of eyes, you can start getting a solid rough estimate to work with. So, Robert, I put a picture of some gumballs in our notes here. Okay. And I already did some calculations on this, but, um, so this is a jar of gumballs, right? You, okay. You attest that it truly yes, is. Yes, it does look like a, a, a jar of gumballs, though this is a two-dimensional image. Right. I have no idea how, how long this could be. This could be, yeah. I assume that it's shaped like a jar, but it could be shaped like something else. Uh, yeah, well, we'll just assume it's basically circular. Okay. So for simplicity's sake, one thing that's a really good method when trying to come up with these rough math guesses is skip standard units of measure. Don't measure things in terms of inches, centimeters, pounds, whatever. Measure in terms of something that you're directly looking at. So instead of measuring the size of the jar Mm -hmm. in inches or centimeters, we're going to calculate it in units of gumballs. Okay. Like don't try and measure it in calories. Right. Okay. So look, you look at a jar and you think, how many gumballs a 
wide does it look like this jar is in diameter? Like 10, maybe? I guess nine. Okay. You want to go with nine? Nine sounds good. Yeah. Okay. And then how many gumballs high do you think the, the jar looks? Oh, I'd say more than that, like 12 or 13. I guess 10. Okay. Hmm. We'll go with 10. Okay. okay. Let's go with 10. Yeah. Okay. Now I, now I feel like I've stomped all over your guess. No, it's no, no. Okay. I know. I think it's, I think that's good because if I sort of turn it sideways, it's, it's still, it's a very square looking jar. All right. So you, you, it's about uh, nine in diameter, about 10 tall. Now a jar is roughly a cylinder, right? Mm-hmm. You remember from geometry, what's the formula for the volume of a cylinder? It's not that complicated. Volume of a cylinder is the area of the circle. Mm-hmm times the height. The area of the circle is pi times the radius squared. So you start with the base of the jar, the circle, pi, which is 3.14, times r. The diameter was 9, right? If it's 9 across, r, the radius is 4.5, because it's half of that. So first you square the radius. 4.5 squared is a little over 20. We just go with 20. And then you multiply that times 3.14, which is 62.8. I'm glad we could agree on the uh, on the the, the fact the figures here because otherwise we would have had to recalculate everything in our notes. Uh, <laughs> you have you have seen through my insistence, uh, Robert. Yes. <laughs> okay, so you got sixty two point eight times the height of how many gumballs high? Ten. Ten. All right. So that says there are about six hundred and twenty eight gumballs in the jar. Now that's probably not going to be right on the money, but I'd say it's also probably going to be a lot closer than the real number or to the real number than if you just eyeballed it, right? If I'd eyeballed the jar, I might have said, I don't know, 350. But now looking back at it, I'm like, oh, you know, that probably is more than 350. Yeah, I yeah, I feel like when I was first looking at it, I would have probably gone, all right, 10 by 10, 100, and then try to like, like think like, all right, maybe three or four deep, and I would have gone 300 to 400. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, but, but I think our estimate now is actually probably better. Uh, and that's the, one of the last things you should do whenever you do this kind of mathematical calculation is you look at the jar again and you think, is my estimate uh, within the realm of possibility? Is mm-hmm. it stupid? If I came up with 13.8 billion gumballs in the jar, this is an indication that the math or the counting went wrong somewhere along the line. You should back up and try again. Yeah, or the jar is uh, is seriously spooky and you should right. not have anything to do with it. Yeah. Uh, another way of checking against reality is to test the method in the real world. So w- would such a method actually win you a gumball jar guessing contest? Well, I thought I'd do some Googling, and I did. And sure enough, I found a blog post about a guy who won a gumball jar guessing contest. (laughs) Somebody asked him what method he used, and he said he calculated the volume of the cylinder in the jar. And and then he randomly (laughs) added 25 to that number. Just to sort of like 25 being the, uh, the, 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 the area of error. In his calculations, huh? Yeah, I, I guess it could huh. be. So he came up with like 17, uh, uh, 1,725 gumballs and actually it was 1,750. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, so, so, so you've got these principles, right? You, you don't have to just surrender to your gut instinct when it's time to guess something. You can couple very simple rough math, you know, this is not complex calculus or anything like that with observations that you can just get by looking at what's in front of you or by drawing on really basic knowledge or even just guesses. 
All you need to do is think about the logical relationships between numbers and know how to look for those relevant pieces of information that might be in your memory or might be right in front of your eyes. Now, I think it's time to get back to Enrico Fermi. So, as we mentioned earlier, Fermi was apparently known for being a really good guesser when it came to numbers. And there is a classic example that's often used as an example of how his method of estimation worked. Um, it would be, how many piano tuners are there in the city of Chicago? Hmm. Now, I have found lots of different versions of this all over the Internet, you know, people uh, working it out in different ways. But the goal of Fermi estimation is not to hit the number exactly, but it is to uh, get into the right ballpark. Yeah, like get in striking distance of it, if you will. Yeah. And so one version of how many piano tuners are in Chicago uh, appears on NASA's Glenn Research Center page. And, and this is their version. Uh, so they start with how, how would you even begin to calculate that? Well, one number you can work with is the population of Chicago. Yeah. OK, so that'll give you something to start with. Mm-hmm. So they go to the almanac. They say this time the Chicago has a population of about three million people. Now, assume that the average family has four members, so like four members per household. So the number of households in Chicago is going to be three million divided by four. So that's about okay. 750,000, 750,000 households. How many households own a piano? They guess one in five. I think that's probably kind of high, but I don't know. Yeah, I, I have, I just have no way of, of, of knowing. Well, one thing you can do in these scenarios that, uh, that I'll get to in a little more depth in just a minute is if you don't know how to guess something like what uh, percent of families have a piano in their household, you come up with boundaries. Mm-hmm. So you say, okay, what's the lowest number that would make any sense? <laughs> What's the highest number that would make any sense? And then you take what's known as a geometric mean between them, which means you multiply them together and then you take the square root of that number. Okay, so the 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 process here could be one in ten people have a piano. That sounds like that would make pianos a bit too rare. One in three. I don't know if they're that common. Let's split the difference more or less and go with one in five. Yeah, that that's actually really close. So if you if you multiply together. Um, one in three, which would be about 0.3, uh, and then one in 10, which would be 0.1, and then you take that number and get the square root of it, your answer is like 0.17, which is close to 0.2, which is one in five. Okay. So there we go. We're on track. So if one in five families has a piano and there are 750,000 families in Chicago, that means there's going to be 150,000 pianos in Chicago. There's a number to work with. All right, you got 150,000. Now, that is a number of pianos that are available to be tuned. So this can give us a foothold to try to figure out how many tuners there are. Okay. Uh, if you've got an average uh, piano tuner, I mean, h- how many pianos do you think they could tune in a day, in a work day? Okay, and this is going with the assumption that, like, they're designated, like, the, the piano tuner makes this his or her, um, life. Like, they're right. not just doing a little piano tuning on the side. Right. It's okay. their full-time job. Okay. Oh, I don't know. Um, unless so you have to travel there, you have, I mean, comfortably, what? 
maybe three or four a day? Well, the, in this estimation, they come up with four. I think four is a reasonable guess. Yeah, like I think of other jobs, like, you know, for instance, my wife's a photographer. She's not uh-huh. tuning pianos, but she has to travel somewhere, do a session, and then come back. And I think, like, if she was just just crazy busy, how many she, could she fit in a day, you know? Yeah. Uh, like, that seems about right. Yeah. Another option, if we didn't believe that uh, four a day, is we could do the geometric mean again. Mm-hmm. We could say, well, it's got to be more than one, and it can't be more than, what, like six. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that'd just be crazy. It can't be, certainly can't be more than eight. Yeah. Um, so then you'd get a geometric mean. That, that'd probably put it a little bit lower than four, but you'd still have some number in that, you know, three, something like that. Yeah. Uh, okay. And then, of course, you assume they don't work on the weekends and they've got a two week vacation during the summer. So okay. that's 50 weeks in a year of tuning four pianos a day, five days a week. So that means in one year, the average worker, the average piano tuner would service 1000 pianos. Now, if we said that there are 150,000 pianos in city of Chicago, that means there should be about 150 piano tuners in the city. I don't know. Does that number sound reasonable? It's at least got you in the ballpark. I guess it sounds reasonable. I... Yeah, it's, I mean, I guess this is a difficult thing to check because is there like a Piano Tuners Association of America that you can check with on this sort of thing? Well, I've seen other estimates that work out the number differently. Yeah. Uh, so they, they, you know, they might say, well, I think that your estimate on step four here is not smart and I would change it to this. Mm-hmm. And that actually gives me, uh, you know, something more like 40 piano tuners in the city of Chicago. And one thing you can check is you can look and see how many are in the phone book. Oh, well, that's true. Yeah. Uh, then again, I mean, in this day and age, there are probably a lot of things that aren't in the phone book. Right. Uh, yeah, you kind of end up like this, the the Yelp versus phone book uh, uh, tug, tug of war, depending on where you're going. Is it a Yelp town or, or are they still a Yellow Pages town? And and then you're you're you know you're you're also forgetting about all the black market piano tuners <laughs> out there. Um, <laughs> Yeah, but those black market piano tuners get less piano tuning done because they're also moonlighting as uh, piano wire assassins. That's true. That's true. Now, when you're estimating big numbers based on little data, one of the things that's really helpful, this uh, helpful concept, is the idea of orders of magnitude. We've talked about this a little so far, but just to be clear about what this is, um, when you read about really big or very little numbers in science, you'll often see those numbers expressed not in full notation written out, but you've seen this before where it is scientific notation. It's a like 4.8 times 10 to the 19 or mm. something like that. Uh, that would be a really big number. And so uh, instead of writing a thousand, you write like 10 to the three or instead of writing point zero zero one, it's 10 to the negative three. And to get more precise, instead of two thousand five hundred, you write two point five times 10 to the three or instead of point zero 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 eight seven, it's eight point seven times 10 to the negative five. Right. So you've. You've got orders of magnitude, and they are the exponent in that type of notation. Every time the exponent goes up or down a number, that's an order of magnitude. Another simpler way of thinking about this is that the order of magnitude is just the number of digits in a number. You've got single-digit number, double-digit, triple-digit, quadruple-digit. Um, when somebody's talking about the number of figures in a salary, they're concerned about orders of magnitude. You know, one thing this reminds me of is, of course, the the, the classic educational film created by uh, the, the Ames, uh, the uh, the Powers of Ten, 
which granted that's a, there's a visual, very strong visual element to that as well, but it basically seeks out to explain and make digestible the scale of the universe. Oh, this is the, the that classic zooming in and yes. out video. Mm-hmm. That thing is great. It is. It's still, I it's mean, wonderful. still holds up really well today and, uh, and is just, you know, phenomenal to watch. But yeah, by considering the order of magnitude, like it's able to make some of these, the, the scale, it's able to make the scale of the universe more digestible. Yeah. Now, if you haven't seen that, go out and Google it right now. You can put us on pause. It, it's worth <laughs> it. You should really watch it. I think it's on YouTube, isn't it? Yes. I believe yeah. that there's an official YouTube, uh, um, version of it. It's just, it's fantastic. Um, but yeah, so back to why, why do orders of magnitude matter? Well, Fermi estimation that this, uh, process that was really, uh, made Immortal by Enrico Fermi is a way of easily guessing numbers by rounding up or down by orders of magnitude and then calculating based on these easy to work with round numbers. So we started doing that in our last example, right, when we were taking geometrical means. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, th- the basic way that a Fermi estimation problem works is you start by figuring out what are the key assumptions what are the factors you would need to know in order in order to calculate your answer so in the piano tuner example you'd be like well okay if we know the city of chicago uh has a certain population and we know that piano tuners can tune a certain amount of pianos each week we can derive from those numbers what we need to calculate our answer so the next step would be like thinking about what order of magnitude your your key pieces of information are on. So like when you're making a guess, this is where the boundaries come in. If you have no idea for a number, if somebody asks you, um, how many Lucky Charms marshmallows have ever been manufactured <laughs> on planet Earth? You have no idea, right? I mean, I, yeah, I wouldn't even know where to start. Absolutely no idea. But actually, you you do know where to start. Because you can play with boundaries again. Mm-hmm. Okay, so what's a low number that you you know it's got to be more than ten thousand? Yeah, I mean that's ridiculous. More than more than ten for sure. You know, yeah. Uh, yeah, but keep keep bringing your lower <laughs> bound up. Yeah, to, as, to as far as I can get away with it. Yeah, so, so yeah. you know it's more than a hundred thousand, right? You know, well, yeah, because it, you know, in fact, you probably know it's more than a million. Because what do you think? At least a million people have eaten a bowl of Lucky Charms at some point in history. Yeah, it's been around and, for at least decades. Yeah, and so. so if at least a million people have eaten a bowl of Lucky Charms mm-hmm. and each bowl had more than one marshmallow in it, you know there's at least more than a million. Okay. Um, I bet we could even go safely to 10 million, but I don't know. I'll stick to a million. Okay. That's our lower bound. And then, uh, you know, what's the upper bound? I mean, you know, there cannot have been 10 trillion, uh, of these marshmallows, right? That right. is just too many marshmallows. That's just way too high. Yeah. Okay. So now you've actually got boundaries. So, you know, there's less than 10 trillion and a geometric mean between 1 million and 10 trillion is 10 billion. Mm-hmm. Is that anywhere close to the right answer? Well, maybe not, but now you've got something to work with. That's better than you started with, which was just, I have no idea. Huh. Well, this is a quite a useful tool we've been, that we've been talking about thus far, because I can already see the ways that this can be easily applied to say, uh, a person's work week. Yeah. You know, how much, how much of, um, you know, my given work can I fit in? Could I, you know, could, could I write this many articles? 
Yeah. Could I write this many? What's the what's the the most extravagant and the smallest number? And then finding that middle ground. Right. So, uh, yeah. But remember, it's not just the simple mean, Mm -hmm. uh, because what what you're really looking for is the the geometric mean, which, again, is instead. So the simple mean, simple average is you add them together and divide by two. Okay. Uh, The geometric mean is multiply them together and then take the square root. Gotcha. So if you say how many articles do you think you could write in a week, Robert? What's the what's the highest possible number that's kind of crazy uh the highest possible number we'll just without boring anybody about details and getting into a big conversation about which form of article etc let's just go ahead and say um 20 articles 20 okay now what's a really low ball number if Um, you were lazy as heck let's say four or five Let's say five, just to keep it cleaner, maybe, or four, whichever one is easier to, to compute. Okay, so four. Okay. Times twenty, then 80. take the square root of that number. Mm-hmm. It's about eight point nine or nine. Okay. So that's a number. All right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that that's better than not having anything to work with. One of the key things about this type of estimation is that it's useful, but it's only useful if you treat it critically. I mean, obviously you can't just generate numbers using this method and then go with them. Mm-hmm. But it does give you a place to to a foothold essentially for yeah. thinking about numbers whereas you started with paralysis. You're starting staring into a void of all possible numbers and you have no idea where to start. Fermi estimation helps give you a place to start with and say, is that reasonable? Hmm. And you can work up and down from there. Um, but okay. So, so you've got that when, when you want to get a factor and you have no idea what it is, put some boundaries in place and then take a geometric mean. Um, now, once you use these assumptions, you make a rough calculation like they did with the piano tuners example. And then you look at your answer and you do a reality check. You say, is this reasonable? Is this number within the realm of possibility? And do I need to go back and adjust anything I did before? Now, this might be a terrible example, but I kind of wanted to just have us try one on the fly. Okay, let's do it. Okay, so you want to guess a totally unknown number. And here's my question. How many pounds of hair do Americans get cut off their heads in total each year? Not individual Americans, all of America. How many pounds of hair are cut? Oh, hmm. all right. Well, uh, the obvious starting point there would be how many Americans are we dealing with, right? Okay, so there you go. So, how many Americans there? I think there are what, like three? Do you want to go with uh, three hundred? And there are more than three hundred million, uh, but we could round down to make it simple. Three, okay, three hundred million sounds good. Okay, so we've got 300 million Americans uh, in a very rough estimate. Now, how many pounds of hair on average does an American have? This is going to vary widely. Some people have dreadlocks to their knees. Some people are totally bald. But what's a good average that would put us right in the middle? Like the the pounds and like how much hair they're having cut off or just how much hair they have? Have. All right. Well, uh, all right. Well, I think, well, what do I know the weight of? The human brain is about three pounds. I feel like hair weighs less than a brain okay. in general. So I would say a pound of hair. I that, don't know. still kind of feels big. Yeah, I would tend to think that people mo- on average have less than a pound of hair. I mm-hmm. mean, somebody who has really long hair, maybe. Yeah. Uh, might have a pound of hair. I don't know. Uh, maybe w- w- this is the, the beauty of it. Just a rough guess. Okay. So, like a quarter of a pound. Okay. Let's start with 0.25. Pounds of hair per person. Okay. 
Okay, well, I did just do the calculation of how many pounds of hair there are in America, but we, we might not actually need that figure. Okay. So 300 million people times a quarter pound of hair per person is 75 million pounds of hair. But okay. like I said, we might not need it. In fact, let's just stick with the quarter pound of hair per person. Okay. What percentage of your hair does the average person get cut off in a haircut? Again, this is going to vary wildly. Some people get their, you know, long hair shaved completely off. Some people get a tiny little trim. But on average, what what is the mass of your hair that is removed in a haircut? Um, off Offhand, I'm thinking 10 to 20 percent. Okay. I would guess kind of higher. I was yeah. thinking uh, I probably wait too long to get a haircut. <laughs> so with me, I think it's like 50 percent. Okay. Um, but maybe we can, uh, get, get in between them. I don't know if everybody, uh, other people wait as long as I do and look as scruffy as I do by the time I go in or, uh, or just get, if people get, you know, really well groomed all the time. Let's say, uh, 25%. Okay. Or you can go as high as 30 if you want. I feel like, like 30 is not too high. Okay. 30%? Like 30% feels like enough to where you would say, Hey, you got a haircut, didn't you? Whereas if you go too low, it, you're more tempted to say, hey, your hair is a little wetter than normal or something. You know, I mean, uh, the 30% seems like it would be like a comfortable level of notice, but not a, whoa, did you join a cult level of haircut? <laughs> okay, well, that gives us a number, actually. So if we say that the average person has a quarter pound of hair and that 30% of their hair is removed in the average haircut. That means that the average haircut in America removes 0.075 pounds of hair. Okay. Now, that's going to vary widely up and down again, but we're just trying to get an average. Now, if we say that the average haircut removes X amount of hair, all we need to know now are how many haircuts there are in America every year. So we already know how many people there are. Mm -hmm. uh, how often would you say that the average person gets a haircut? Ooh, this is this is a, a tough one, right? Um, but I'm guessing once every two months. Okay, so six times a year. Yeah, that that feels maybe a little that's a little higher than what I actually tend to do. Like I might do it four times a year. Now that I think about it, well, let's take the average and go five times. I feel a like year. I'm not being very consistent with my math. People are trying to figure out how fast my hair grows based on my strange figures here. I guess, uh, but no, that sounds good. Okay, so in this case, uh, if you get 0 0.075 pounds of hair removed every time you get a haircut and you get a haircut five times a year, every year you get 0.375 pounds of hair removed from your head. 0.375 pounds removed every haircut or every year? Every year. It's 0 0.075 removed per haircut five times a year. That's 0.375 pounds. All right. Well, that number, that feels right to me. Okay, well now all we need to do is multiply by our 300 million people. <laughs> each each one of them gets an average of 0.375 pounds of hair removed per year, and there are 3 million people. So that gives us a a total mass of hair removed from human heads in the United States every year of about 112 million pounds. 112,500,000 pounds. Does that sound right? Hmm. Well, we, it feel, it feels more right having done the legwork. You know what I'm saying? Like since right. we were able to break it down, if you just come up with that number just on the fly, 
I might have really kind of, um, you know, uh, sat there and crunched it for a while. I'm thinking, oh, I don't know if that feels right. But since we did the legwork and we dealt with, with, with quantities that were more relatable in order to get there, yeah. I'm, I'm certainly more inclined to trust it. Now, one of the beautiful things about this type of estimation is that errors tend to balance each other out. Hmm. So one of the things we, we were saying as we're going through is we're using very rough figures. Obviously, right. the population of the United States is more than 300 million. We just rounded down okay. to make it easy. Um, the amount of hair on each person's head, we don't really know. It's a quarter of a pound. That was just a guess. That might be too much. That might be too little. But as you keep going through the experiment at each stage, you are making a guess. And that guess, if uh, unless you're consistently biased in one direction or another, always overestimating or always underestimating, Mm -hmm. your errors will start to balance each other out. Hmm. And this kind of helps keep your answer within the bounds of possibility. Even if you're wrong on one thing, you might be wrong in the opposite direction on another guess. Huh. It's kind of like life. Exactly. (laughs) It's a lot like the game of life. Or you mean the life of life. Which is just uh, the, the life in general. Not Life Magazine. No, but, you know, that's part of life. Oh, I should smack myself for that joke. I'm sorry. But anyway, whether or not our answer is correct, it may be totally off the mark. Mm -hmm. But we've started to give ourselves something to work with. And if we really cared about this, like if it mattered (laughs) how much hair is removed from Americans' heads every year... This would give us a good starting place to start working with. One of the next steps, I think, would to be go, would be to go back and look at our individual factors that we put in throughout that uh, that calculation process mm-hmm. and try to hone them and say really what's reasonable. You know, we could start looking at our own heads, the heads of the people around us in the offices, and saying, "Yeah, is a quarter pound of hair real? That sounds kind of high. I don't mm-hmm. know." Uh, but but you you can start refining it once you've got something to work with. And that's one of the big values of Fermi estimation. Um, even though the method isn't likely to give you a precisely correct answer every time, scientists and engineers find this type of guessing extremely useful because it gets you into a sort of order of magnitude ballpark where you can start to check your guess against other modes of estimation or against experiments and discoverable facts. And it also helps you get your mind around what assumptions are necessary in order to compute your final precise number. Does that make sense? Like you, yeah. you start to realize what the uh, you take things that were unknown unknowns turn into known unknowns. Mm-hmm. Now you at least know what the variables are, even if you don't know exactly what the numbers should be. OK. And turning an unknown unknown into a known unknown is halfway along the process to turning it into a known known <laughs> or even a gnome. Well, let's hope it didn't go that far. All right, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we will jump back into this question of, of estimating, guesstimating, and, uh, and so forth. Okay, we're back. Now, let's look at one of the most famous examples of a Fermi estimation type problem in history. And this would be the Drake equation and the Fermi paradox that is uh, an interpretation on it. Yes. All right. So in order to to get this down, we have to go back to 1950. Now, if you're remembering from earlier, that's what, three years before Fermi's death. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, go back to 1950. Fermi's having lunch with his fellow eggheads at the Los Alamos Jet uh, Propulsion uh, Lab cafeteria. All right. He's flipping through a copy of The New Yorker 
when he happens upon a particular cartoon. Now, uh, I, I have a picture of the cartoon for, uh, really, for, it's for the, you, original this is the original. Yeah, this is the one. Uh, and, uh, I'll try to include a link to this on the landing page for this episode at stufftoblowyourmind.com. So what's going on? There's a flying saucer mm-hmm. and some, uh, space people are carrying baskets to and from it. Yeah, they're, they're collecting garbage, apparently. Um, <laughs> uh, curiously enough, I don't have the caption here or, uh, I don't know if they were doing the caption contest back then. Yeah. But if, if the caption contest, uh, from the New Yorker makes its way across your social media feeds, you know exactly what sort of, uh, cartoon we're talking here. Uh-huh. So it's not quite far side. It's not laugh out loud funny. Uh, but you, you look at it and you, your, your wheels begin to turn a little bit. And that's what happened with Fermi. He looks at this and, if if he were to enter the New York uh, the New Yorker uh, caption contest, his caption would have been "Where is everybody?" Because that is, uh, according to the story, the question he asked, and he was referring to the aliens, to life beyond this uh, ex- insignificant rock of ours. He wondered uh, more specifically, you know, not only like where are where are these aliens at, but he wondered whether interstellar travel was even possible. And indeed, as far as we know, it, it has not occurred. You know, I mean, this when we we kind of broke it down some of this in our uh, the, the episode that Christian and I did on the expanse and the idea of just like the vast distances in our universe, like even the distances between our planets and our solar system are pretty colossal. And when you start extrapolating that beyond our system, uh, it just gets increasingly just incredibly uh, distant. There is so much space right. in space. Yeah. And so he was saying, well, you know. Where are they? Is it even possible for for uh, life forms to travel between stars? Yeah. Why aren't we seeing them? Why aren't we hearing from them? Exactly. So Fermi died uh, you know, four, four years later at the age of 54. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the question that he asked lived on and the problem filtered through Fermi's co-workers, his contemporaries, and it became something of a legend. Uh, and in uh, 1975, the astronomer Michael Hart declared that the reason we don't see any aliens is because they do not exist. Which, you know, that's that's one possible answer. Right? Certainly is. Yeah. And then in 1977, an astrophysicist by the name of David G. Stevenson said that Hart's statement could answer Fermi's question, which he officially dubbed Fermi's paradox. So to be clear, Fermi himself did not pose the question. Right. The paradox is merely named for him in honor of him and in accordance with this sort of folkloric uh, idea. Right. But the uh, the sort of general mode of guessing or guesstimating that's now known as Fermi estimation or mm-hmm. a Fermi type problem is related to this uh, because there is what's known as the Drake equation. And the Drake equation is kind of like playing the how many piano tuners game uh, or in Chicago game mm-hmm. with the Milky Way galaxy. Right. It is a Fermi guess formulation designed to estimate the number of piano tuners in the Milky Way. Or wait a minute. No, the number of technological civilizations <laughs> in the Milky Way galaxy, meaning the number of civilizations whose electromagnetic emissions like radio waves we should be able to detect today. Mm-hmm. And so it takes a form. There's actually an equation. It says, okay, in, that's the answer, and that's the number of civilizations in the Milky Way galaxy whose electromagnetic emissions are detectable. And the, the version of this I'm using is the one that SETI has on their website. And to, to calculate in, you multiply R, which is the rate of formation of stars suitable for the development of intelligent life, by 
FP, meaning the fraction of those stars with planetary systems. Not all stars are going to have planets. Mm -hmm. And then you multiply that by NE, the number of planets per solar system with an environment suitable for life. So every solar system uh, might uh, might have planets, but wouldn't necessarily have planets within the habitable zone. It might be all too hot or too cold. Mm -hmm. And then you've got FL, the fraction of suitable planets on which life actually appears. Might be a lot of nice planets out there, but they're just dead. Uh, And then FI, the fraction of life-bearing planets on which intelligent life emerges. Maybe a lot of planets out there just have bacteria on them. And then FC, the fraction of civilizations that develop a technology that releases detectable signs of their existence into space. So there might be intelligent life out there, but they're not making radio waves. Okay. And then finally, multiplied by L, the length of time such civilizations release detectable signals into space. So many of the variables in this in this calculation are pure unknowns. Answers are all over the place for this reason. Uh, but a lot of things in here are not as unknown as they once were. For example, we're starting to get a very good sense of the fraction of stars with planetary systems and the average number of planets suitable for life in the Milky Way galaxy. We're starting to see, okay, this is about how many planets are out there. Here's the proportion of them that are, you know, not too hot or too cold to sustain life. Those are coming to within reckoning distance. Other variables about like the prevalence of emergence of life and intelligence, those are still just big question marks. But you can still play the same game with them. You could try to set up boundary conditions, right? What's the lowest boundary? Well, the lowest boundary would be, I don't know, some fraction of one. I mean, obviously, it wouldn't be zero because we're here. Mm -hmm. So we know that it's a non-zero chance that these things happen. Uh, what's the highest possible thing? Well, obviously we're not seeing, uh, these, uh, these, uh, planets with life on them in our solar system other than, other than Earth. Well, actually we don't even know that for sure yet. <laughs> but anyway, there are a lot of ways you can try to put numbers in, uh, where these variables exist. And so I've seen estimates using the Drake equation turn up answers less than one, meaning we're almost definitely alone in the galaxy and even our existence is a real stroke of luck. Uh, and then I've seen ones that are in the hundreds of millions, but in that case, what's the deal? <laughs> like, yeah. well, why aren't we detecting anything? Are we in some kind of protected zoo where we're, you know, the oh, yeah, aliens yeah. hiding from us? The, the nature preserve theory. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But one interesting thing is we mentioned earlier, whenever you're doing these types of of estimations, uh, it's good to check them against reality. So you might think of our actual radio astronomy as a reality check on the numbers generated or the guesstimates of the Drake equation. So this is, uh, this is fascinating again, because you've taken something that is like a giant gaping mystery and unknown. Yeah. And you boil it down into a series of essentially smaller unknowns, uh, knowns and, uh, and, and guessable uh, factors. Yeah, exactly. You're, you're making the problem workable. Mm-hmm. And, and so th- this is a way in which, uh, Fermi estimation has multiple uses. I guess one of them is practical. It's just practical. And, you know, when you don't know any of the factors, you can use it to come up with a reasonable guess for an answer. Mm-hmm. But the other thing is what we've been talking about. It's making a problem more understandable. Even if you don't actually come up with a reasonable answer, it starts to help you get your mind around what you would need to know in order to solve it. 
All right, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to discuss some of the, the, the softer social science of guessing and try to conduct an experiment of our own. All right, so we've discussed how guesswork is art as well as science, and indeed there's certainly a social art to it in some cases. So the art of overestimation or underestimation in social situations. Uh, I think we've all encountered situations in which guessing isn't merely about making a correct guess. It's also about making a guess that lands with an appropriate level of social grace. Uh, it's like, uh, guess what my SAT score was. Yeah, like uh, weird questions <laughs> like that. Uh, like another notable example would be guess how old I am, which is generally a question you only ask a child or you ask if you are a child. Uh-huh. Um, and because it's loaded, right? And I've, uh, and to your point, you also see guess how, how much I make as being another, uh, question that is sometimes asked. Uh, the need for, for such a, a guess might not come up directly, but of course we can all imagine situations where it ends up when they end up coming up. You know, yeah. like you're trying to figure out if a friend of yours is into the same movie that you are and you're like, oh, well, how old are you? You're such and such, you yeah. know? So you might indirectly, indirectly find yourself having to make such a guess. So this uh, very conundrum is actually explored in The Art and Science of Guessing by Shen, Si, Zhang, and Da. And this was published in the journal Emotion in 2011. So they ask, you know, are we, are we going to be happier with overguessing or happier with underguessing? Just in general? Like people guessing too high or guessing too low? Yeah. How does that make you feel when someone uh, get over or underestimates uh, something about you? Now, is this limited to certain types of factors or are they trying to get a general effect for any sorts of numbers? Um, general, but like they're, they're focusing around very specific questions. OK, uh, as, as we'll discuss. So they predicted that overguessing would reign supreme. Uh, though obviously not with guessing another person's age, because that one kind of stands out. Generally, you want people to guess that you're younger than you are. Right. Okay, so naturally the researchers conducted a few tests to try this out. And it's important to note culturally, as we'll get into, that some experiments were conducted in China and others in the U.S. And that's especially important with experiment one, which concerns asking friends how much money they make, which I don't know about about you, but generally that that's not something that is done at dinner parties that I go to where people will say, hey, how much money do you make in a year? Uh, not my friends. I ask my enemies how much money they make. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Or, you know, I guess with family members, maybe it's more practical, but generally friends and contemporaries are not asking that question. It's kind of taboo. But according to the, the research in China, it is was more common. So they used 40 employees from multiple companies in a large city in China. And I'll spare you the the monetary details uh, of the study. But the finding was, quote, contrary to what common wisdom and existing literature would suggest, the study revealed a happier with underguessing effect. So someone Hmm. thinks, oh, well, you just you probably make 30,000 a year, but you actually make 35. But you feel happy. So I guess it's like, like, oh, you, you get to prove them wrong. You get to prove them wrong. Yeah. Or you're, or you're like, oh, you think I'm only worth that much, but I'm actually worth this much. I'm fantastic. That's yeah. kind of the response. No, that makes sense to me. Yeah. So experiment two tackled academic performance with American test subjects, 107 business students guessing each other's uh, GMAT scores as a graduate management admissions test. The results, the underguess was most pleasing. The overguess was least pleasing, and the accurate guess was in between. I, I think it's interesting here that the the accurate guess is 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 somewhere in between. Like nobody uh-huh. really wants to be pinned down completely. No, it doesn't yeah. feel good. Yeah, even but it also feels bad to be uh, overestimated. 
Like it's the, the inner, like you, if you're underestimated, you, you get that, uh, that feeling of, oh, I'm actually, uh, I'm actually better than you think I am. But if they, if you're overestimated, there might be like this superficial feeling of, oh, they think I'm, they think I'm better than I am, but, uh, but I'm actually not. It might be nice to have people guess like what your favorite movies are or something yeah. like that, but it does not seem like it's nice to have people correctly guess what numbers are true about you. Yeah, it's it's, it's the quantitative aspect that makes accuracy unpleasant. Yeah, it's like being pinned down to a chart. So then came experiment three, 2009 business students from a large university in the United States engaged in an imagined scenario. Okay, you work at a large company, your annual bonus will be between $3,000 and $30,000. Exact amount will be confidential. So participants were then told in this imaginary experiment here, uh, scenario, that they'd receive $15,000. And they were asked to imagine that they heard a colleague guessing about their bonus. The guess was $30,000 in the overguess condition and $3,000 in the underguess condition. And then they were asked to indicate whether they felt better or worse upon hearing the guess. The results, again, the overguess resulted in the most happiness, but the researchers drive home that a lot of that results boils down to what's more important to the individual, truth or impression. So really, what ends up mattering more to a specific individual, the actual amount of money they take home or the amount of money uh, that people think they take home. And this is interesting, right? Because so much in life is this mixture of substance and perception. Do you want to be rich or do you want to appear rich? Do you want to be smart or appear smart? And, and, and there's kind of this, tu- this, uh, this, uh, this, uh, this push and pull of both factors, well, I feel. We're back to the charm effect, the James Bond effect. Right. You know, we were talking about at the beginning. Some people might actually not be, uh, better, uh, more lucky than others, but they, they can sure appear that way just by sort of projecting a successful attitude. Yeah. Yeah. So it, the, the soft science of guessing becomes even softer the more you, uh, you, you tease at it. Okay. One last thing. Okay. I want to look at a totally different kind of guessing. We've talked about tools to make you better at guessing, but I want to think about what goes on in the human mind when we guess, when we've got absolutely nothing to work with. Okay. No info, no probabilities, no plausible boundaries, just the, the opaque magic of pure randomness. Okay. Because this is, this is sort of the core of guessing. When we say guessing, you know, it, a lot of what guessing conjures in the mind is scenarios of total uncertainty, okay. randomness. Okay, so I want to do an experiment with you, Robert. All right. I've got a deck of cards fanned out here. Okay. Here's the experiment. I'm holding up a card to Robert. Okay. What is the suit of this card? All now, right. you are not looking at the face of the card. Robert is looking at the back of yes. the card. Well, this is awesome because I, I I have a one in four chance, right? Right. I'm going to say clubs. Nope. Jack of spades. Ah. Now, let me try it again. Now, think really hard this time. Am I guessing the exact card? No, you are guessing the suit. Oh, okay. I'm going to say clubs. Nope. Hearts. All right. But here's the question. Where did your answers come from? Your accuracy was actually not important to me there. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about the subjective experience. Try it one more time. What's the suit? Nope. Spades. Darn it. Why, though? Why did you say clubs when you have no reason to prefer clubs over any other? I don't know. It just came to my mind first. I was for it, it's it's almost like I not that I was at a loss for the, the the words, but like that was the one that came up first. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a weird thing. It's like 
Next time you make a guess without a conscious methodology, you, mm-hmm. you out there listening, look inside yourself and ask this question. Where did that guess come from? Why did I say clubs and not something else when I had no logical reason to prefer clubs over anything else? Now, I will say I stuck to clubs because I thought clubs has got to come up like I, yeah. I might as well, even though I guess it's it's. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, it it seemed like the thing to do. Like I just should should just stick to clubs, and clubs will do yeah. me right eventually. Well, that actually would be a smart strategy if I was like removing cards from the deck. And you were, yeah. yeah okay, yeah. okay. Well, then I guess the question would be, what what did you guess the first time, or what would you have guessed if I was not removing cards from the deck? Uh, because that, yeah, there, there's no, there's just nothing you can do. And yet our brains still are able to come up with an answer. And I think this is one of those everyday moments that sort of passes by us without much fanfare, just it's very humdrum. But if you force yourself to stop and examine it, it becomes so deeply weird and mysterious. Mm-hmm. We've, we've got these voids inside our minds that produce information on no input. It's kind of like you, you go somewhere in the back of your mind and there's one of those drive through bank teller boxes, you know, where it slides <laughs> out and you open the shutter and what you put in is just a request for a random response and you push it in and a split second later, the box slams back out, pops open with an answer for you. What happened inside? Where did that random answer come from? Uh, I, that might not even occur to you as something to think about being odd, but I don't know. It strikes me as very odd. Why do our brains come up with random answers on command with no logical uh, reasoning behind them? Yeah. One example that I do encounter with this sometimes is in yoga class. We'll be in, we'll be doing a plank. Mm-hmm. And in order to pass the time, we'll go through the alphabet and like name trees that begin with each letter. Yeah. And it's curious to self-reflect and be like, why did that tree come up? Why did that animal come up? Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes it feels like the brain just spits it out randomly, like a like a hand uh, with a deck of cards just shooting one to the surface. Yeah. So what's causing one card to come up instead of another? Mm-hmm. Um, so... In terms of coming up with true randomness, uh, I've actually read a little bit about uh, research into people studying uh, humans' ability to generate random numbers on command. Like, this is actually a field of study. It's like, can you please list a series of random one-digit numbers? One problem is that people are actually very cruddy random number generators. Like, they, they either have too much symmetry in their answers or too little symmetry. Um, like the, 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 they get caught up in trying to make it random and thus they make it non-random. Hmm. But yeah, I just think it's interesting. Like what's, what's the biological purpose of that? Like why is that something brains can do? It's something huh. you specifically have to, have to command computers to figure out how to do. Computers by nature don't generate random numbers. You need to come up with a way of them to, you know, draw on some kind of va- uh, variable or data to generate random numbers. Um, so like why do brains do that and where do the numbers come from? Uh, there, there was one study that I looked at that I thought was kind of interesting and it's a 1999 study by Elliot Rees and Dolan in the journal Neuropsychologia. And, uh, and what they did is they used fMRI to see if there were any differences in activation patterns in the brain between reporting on knowledge and random guessing. So in one group, researchers would show subjects a playing card on the face side. Here you go, Robert. What card is this? Uh, that would be a five of clubs. Right, because I'm showing you the card. Mm-hmm. You're just reporting. This is working memory in the brain. You're taking in information. You're spitting it back out. Not all that weird. 
It's a very different thing to hold up the back of a card and say, what's the card here? You have no information at all, so you randomly guess. Six of diamonds. Four of diamonds. Kind of close. close. Yeah. Kind of close. That's like a, a ballpark. Uh, you're within an order of magnitude, maybe. Yeah, but I think I randomly said six only because I just said five. Right. Uh, but when you're when you're guessing the front of a card, just looking at the back, there's no gumball logic. There's no Fermi estimation to help you. It's just random. And yet the authors found that something's going on in the brain when mm-hmm. we're generating random guesses. There is activity. Uh, they write if their analysis is correct. They write, quote, these data suggest that while uh, simple two choice guessing depends on an extensive neural system, including regions of the right lateral prefrontal cortex, activation of orbitofrontal cortex increases as the probabilistic contingencies become more complex as it becomes harder to understand, you know, uh, what's going on. So uh, they say, quote, guessing thus involves not only systems implicated in working memory processes, but also depends upon orbitofrontal cortex. This region is not typically activated in working memory tasks, and its activation may reflect additional requirements of dealing with uncertainty. There are specific patterns going on in the brain when you're trying to generate random answers. And I just think, like, what's the biological function of that? Where does that come from? Why why, why do animals have this ability with the brain to generate randomness? Hmm. I don't know. That's a, that's a wonderful question, though. We've been talking a lot about uh, cognitive tools, rules of thumb, but there is another way of thinking about people who are good at guessing. Uh, as we've said, you know, obviously some people are better at guessing and guesstimating than others, but obviously not all of them are using these tools, right? When you think about people you know who are very good guessers, they're, they're not necessarily doing Fermi calculations, coming up with numbers in their head, uh, exploring boundaries, taking geometric means and multiplying things together. A lot of times it seems to be just intuitive. So I wonder if there's another way to think about differential skill levels in guessing and if it's more like finesse at certain sports and athletic activities, uh, meaning that when you think about somebody who's good at hitting shots in basketball, what is that skill? It's obviously not an issue of raw strength. It's not speed. It's not endurance. If somebody can't hit three-pointers, it's usually not because they're not strong enough to get the ball to the hoop. Uh, when you shoot in basketball, at some level, what you're doing is math. Obviously, you're not consciously making calculations, but you're you're trying to calculate and execute a precise arc trajectory, uh, factoring the distance and uh, the distance to the hoop, the presence of the backboard, the bounciness of the ball. It's kind of like you're playing. You, do you ever play that old game, the gorilla throwing the banana at each other? <laughs> no, but it's it sounds fun. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, it's an old game, uh, like an old basic game. You'd have two gorillas standing on rooftops and you'd enter the angle and the velocity of this bomb banana throw. Oh, it's a computer game. Yeah. You, oh, I thought this is like it's like you just throw bananas at each other and pretend you're gorillas. But oh, okay. no, no. Well, okay. that would involve calculating precise arc, yeah. arc trajectories, too. I mean, trying to hit something by throwing it, in a sense, you are doing math, even if you're not consciously doing math. Right. Um, so perhaps in some ways, I, I wonder if certain kinds of skill in sports should be thought of as having less to do with the power of the body and being more like an unconscious version of the mind of a highly skilled guesser, like an intuitive Fermi. And in the same way, I, I wonder if there's something unconscious in your nervous system that's able to make good guesses about precise angles and velocity to sink a three-pointer 
there might be other ways in which we have unconscious intuitions that are nevertheless doing some kind of math. Math is, is being calculated in the brain, even if we're not aware of it. In, in some cases, giving some people better intuitions about guessing than others, even without doing all this math. I don't know, just something to think about. All right, well, on that note, we're going to go ahead and close out here. Uh, hey, as always, check out StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's where you'll find the landing page for this episode, as well as all the past episodes, videos, blog posts, you name it. Uh, also links out to our various social media accounts, such as Tumblr and Facebook, uh, Instagram, and Twitter. And, hey, if you are a Twitter user, uh, take advantage of uh, this initiative that we're a part of here, this uh, tripod initiative. Simply use the hashtag tripod with a Y, and recommend some of your favorite podcasts that you listen to on a regular basis. For me, I'm a big fan of uh, Radiolab, of course. Oh, uh, yeah. I think most of our listeners probably are. So hit on, go on to Twitter, use that hashtag again, hashtag tripod with a Y, and recommend some of your favorite shows. Hey, and why don't you email us with some of your favorite podcasts? Maybe we can try them out and put them on our rotation. Anyway, if you want to get in touch with us about that, or about feedback on this episode, or any other, or let us know about what you're thinking, future episodes you might want to hear, you can always email us directly at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 